0: Welcome to Season 5 of Writers' Festival Radio, broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Anishinaabe Algonquin Nation. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, Canada's festival of ideas since 1997. We're celebrating 25 years of community connection, and I want to give special thanks to our amazing volunteers who make it all possible, and to thank you for supporting the festival, authors, booksellers, and each other. Today on Writers' Festival Radio, we present the first of three special episodes in collaboration with Carleton University's Beyond Resettlement Conference. We begin with Professor Zolkafar Hirji in conversation with Hafsa Zayan. Hafsa is half Nigerian, half Pakistani, and was born and raised mostly in the UK. She is a dispute resolution lawyer working in the City of London and is also the author of We Are All Birds of Uganda the winner of Murky Books Inaugural New Writers' Prize and shortlisted for the Goldsboro Glass-Bell Award.
1: This past September 2022 marked the 50th anniversary of the more than 50,000 Ugandan Asians who were expelled from Uganda in 1972 by the military dictator Idi Amin. These people, women, men, children, families, the old, the infirmed, rich, poor, many of whom had known no other home than Africa, some for generations, were given 90 days to leave Uganda or face severe consequences. This year also marks the anniversary of the full commencement of Idi Amin's almost decade-long reign of terror during which more than 500,000 Ugandan Africans were murdered. Our series of conversations focuses on authors who have written fictional novels related to the expulsion of the Ugandan Asians. The series is part of the conference beyond resettlement exploring the history of the ugandan asian community in exile to be held at carlton university in november 2022 the conversation is also featured as part of the ottawa international writers festival podcast series i am zulfikar hirji and joining me today is the writer Hafsa zayan a half nigerian half pakistani who was born and raised mostly in the uk She's a dispute resolution lawyer working in the City of London and is author of We Are All Birds of Uganda, the winner of Murky Books' inaugural New Writers Prize and shortlisted for the Goldsboro Glass Bell Award 2022, focusing on the South Asian expulsion from Uganda in 1972. When she is not fighting fires in court, Hafsa spends her time reading, writing, and painting. She recently contributed an essay in a collection titled Of This our country alongside other Nigerian authors, including Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, Inuwa Elams, and Abidare. Her next publication is expected for May 2023. Welcome Hafsa, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Hafsa, I wanted to start by just asking you a question about when you started to write, and in fact, to say that your profession is lawyer is being a lawyer as well as a writer and a painter but when did you decide that you wanted to write and what motivated you to write fiction
2: in particular well I'm not sure I'd go so far as to say I'm also a painter <laughs> I definitely just doodle in my spare time um, but yes I, I, I think I could I can qualify myself as a lawyer and an author um, which is quite a, a nice thing to be able to say um, when did I decide I wanted to write? I mean, I I wanted to write my whole life since I was a young, young girl and I used to, um, you know, sit at home writing on, on pieces of paper and give it to my mum and ask her to type it up um, on our singular computer that we had back in the 90s. Um, I think because I was such an avid reader as a child, I was just really inspired by everything I read to try to create my own stories. Um, and so I would, you know, spend many days on holidays and weekends just um, scribbling down stories and, and writing things, and sometimes even producing some illustrated books. Um, but I, I kind of gave all of it up when I, when I um, kind of followed um, a more professional career or a sort of more vocational um, degree, one which would lead you straight into a job. Um, and I did a law degree, and I did a master's in law, and I ended up becoming a lawyer. And I kind of put the writing on the um, back burner until uh, Murky Books um, launched essentially what's an open submission competition. Um, And that's the that's the prize that I won. And that's how We're All Birds of Uganda came into existence.
1: Did you keep any of your earlier writing or have your parents packed it away somewhere in some box um, for posterity or
2: did you throw it all out? No, I would never throw it away. We were very sadly, our old computer was stolen. It was in my dad's car and somebody broke into his car and, and stole the old computer. So um, back then you didn't kind of, I think you had maybe like floppy disks or something to record yeah. um, <laughs> to record stuff. But I didn't have any, any of my work on a floppy. So it was all on the um, RAM of this um, PC, this huge PC. And so that was all gone. But I had written a lot of stuff by hand. Um, and so I still have a few of those old stories. I have sort of journals which have, um, little short stories in them. I have a couple of, um, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't describe them as novels, but I used to write a lot of sort of children's things. So a few sort of children's books, um, scattered here and there. And I have my illustrated, my illustrated one as well as somewhere at home. So no, they're not, they're not gone. A
1: great personal archive to return to at some point in the future, I'm sure. The story you tell in We Are All Birds of Uganda is a fictional one, but it's located in the arc of historical events. um, And in the decades preceding, Idi Amin's order that the Asians be expelled from Uganda, and then many years afterward. What drew you to write a story centered around the
2: Ugandan-Asian expulsion of 1972? So I... Obviously, you know, as as you mentioned, my background is half African, half South Asian. So I've always been very interested in the kind of um, the the kind of mix of these two cultures being kind of a product of that mixture myself. Um, My mum was uh, an immigrant to West Africa um, together with her family. She was born and raised in Nigeria. She spent her whole childhood and her life there. She left straight for the UK when she was 25. Um, so she'd never known anything other than than Nigeria, along with a few of her siblings. Um, and, you know, she, of course, she ended up marrying a, a Nigerian man. Um, and so I, I grew up kind of always, you know, with one foot in kind of black community and, and one foot in the South the Asian community. Um, and it, that for me had always been a, a very kind of um, almost tortured existence where I was constantly uh, questioning who I was and, and, and sort of wondering about my identity, especially also growing up in the West. So I had to contend with being sort of British as well. Um, so the, the, the general topic of South Asians in Africa had always intrigued me. And then about a decade ago, I met my husband who's of South Asian, Ugandan descent. And I was really um, surprised to discover that I hadn't really heard anything about the South Asian expulsion. Most of my, you know, friends, they were either kind of, um, you know, ethnic minority friends, they were either like Pakistani, um, or, you know, direct Pakistani connection, um, or, you know, West African South Asian, I even had some South African South Asian friends. Um, But I didn't, I didn't actually know anyone who was East African South Asian. And, um, you know obviously mistakenly because there is a big diaspora in, in the UK um, I, I, I didn't realize that there the, the was and so the reason I wanted to write the story is because I, I wanted to educate my generation I mean of course at the time that it, you know, that it happened it was a huge international um, story and, and you know that that generation would be well aware of it but mine, mine wasn't and you know I, I talked to some of my South Asian friends um, some of my Pakistani friends and sort of said, well, have you heard of this? And, and they said, no. And I found that really surprising as well. So that, that's really what motivated writing about the story because it was, a, it was a story that was a huge part of British history, one that we hadn't been taught anything about in school. Um, uh, you know, we were surrounded by, by um, members of the diaspora and, and, and we just didn't know the history. And the most interesting thing, I think, or one of the most interesting things that happened subsequently is after I wrote the book, some of my South Asian friends came out and said to me, oh, you know, my dad is from Tanzania, don't you? Or, you know, my family is from, you know. <laughs> and I thought, oh my gosh, I just always assumed that you, you didn't have any connection to East Africa because you never mentioned it before. And they said, well, I've never spoken to my family about it before, but your books encouraged me to do so. So, um, you know, at least three of my South Asian friends, I, I, after I wrote the book, I found out that they, they had East African um, background. And so that was super interesting to me as well.
1: Yeah no I think that's really interesting that you say that you know while it was one generation's experience the next generation seems to have um perhaps have a less understanding of it or knowledge of it um why do you why do you think that um british sort of history books or school curricula or university courses don't include this quite significant episode um in sort of british history you said it's part of british history what what do you think the, the reason um, you and I both actually share an alma mater. I went to Cambridge just like you did. And I don't remember courses at Cambridge that discussed this particular aspect of history. So I'm just curious, what uh, what is it that uh, you think prevents these kinds of stories to kind of enter into the classroom?
2: I think <laughs> it's a largely political question. But um, you know, if you look at the school curriculum and what you learn as a child, I'm talking about pre-university level you know if you if you want to study something like the history of south asians in britain at university level i'm sure you can find a course where, where that's available to you in this country but um you know in terms of your mandatory education what you learn up to the age of 16 um and you know you're sort of quasi mandatory but you know a lot of people go on to do a levels but obviously not everybody but you know the, the history courses that are offered at a level as well um they just exclude anything <laughs> which shows the empire the British Empire in a negative light um from or at least, or at least that's how it was when i was when I was growing up um you know from 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 the from the kind of um scope of you know we want to paint the paint the british Empire and the history and and colonialism all in this super positive light so we don't have all the Uh, all the students questioning why, um, you know, we've we've ravaged all these relics from all these various countries and what they're doing in our museum um, and why are we claiming them as our own? So yeah, I mean, of course, it's just a question of politics. And I I learned about colonialism through my English literature classes, not through my history classes. Like in my history classes, I was sitting there learning about mummification um, in, you know, Egyptian (laughs) times or what the Romans did, or the biggest topic of all, of course, World War Two, and that was kind of the extent of it. I didn't learn anything about the about Britain's colonial history until until I read um, Heart of Darkness in in English. And whilst that's not the most amazing text to to give you a sort of balanced view of, of what happened, it did encourage me to to do some research and find out a bit more about what the Belgians were even doing in the DRC. You know, I I didn't know that the, these things had happened, and. and you know if no one's going to teach you in your history classes and and um you know how would you how would you know so um yeah it's 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 just all politics really isn't it we've had a lot of this uh, these kinds of conversations um happening recently obviously we we lost the queen quite recently and these conversations have been kind of spreading all over all over uh, twitter and social media so what not having had
1: this background sort of in your primary education um what research did you have to do for, to write this book? And how long did you spend doing this research before you actually put pen to paper or put your fingers on the keyboard, I should say. Yeah, pen
2: to paper, so
1: old fashioned.
2: Um, no, I, well, I mean, it was, it was kind of twofold the research because of course the whole thing started with the stories of my in-laws and what had happened to them because they were, you know, a direct primary source um, you know, anecdotal evidence of of this story. You know, a generation that's still surviving. And you know, even since I've written this book, one one member of my my close um, in law families has since passed away. So it's just another example of how important it is to to get the get these stories from that generation before they're gone. But um, I, I I that was sort of the prime, the beginning of it all, sort of sitting down with them and and talking to them. Um, and uh, thereafter, it was a combination of using things like Carlton's Oral History Project, uh, which I delved into all of those wonderful transcripts, um, reading memoirs, um, you know, there, there's quite a few uh, memoirs out there, um, reading other fiction on the topic, but there's not, there wasn't much at the time anyway that I was writing this, um, and then more general research in terms of looking at, uh, you know, clips from the BBC, um, any articles that had been written, um, the second sort of half of it was more academic, in a sense. I mean, I've spent some time in the British Library reading um, texts about refugee camps and, and you know, the South Asian um, expulsion in, in the context of uh, refugees in, in Britain and um, other, other ac- various academic texts on like the legality of the expulsion, um, the kind of uh, history of the legal position in Uganda at the time because obviously like you mentioned earlier there had been a, a long build-up to, um, to the to the expulsion order um, essentially precipitated after the, the independence in the 60s and so you had this almost like decade of, of kind of rules and regulations that were slowly being implemented in Uganda and of course across the rest of East Africa as well which is why you had so many South Asians um, from Kenya and Tanzania actually leaving before Idi Amin's um, uh, decree in in Uganda. So um, it was was a a mixture of um, direct kind of discussions with my in-laws, secondhand uh, uh, review of of other oral transcripts and and interviews and things like that that I'd seen online. And then the kind of more heavy academic side of it um, and, and kind of just reading around so there was a lot of research involved particularly to write the historical part of the book because it is split into two two narratives there's a modern day section in it and a historical section um, and you asked me also how much time I spent researching it I would say the entire time I was writing it I was researching it so the research never stopped um, and that was the kind of the great thing about writing a book like this because obviously it's, 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 it's a creative writing it's fiction and Sometimes you get writer's block and you just can't you can't write. And one of the great things about having all of this research to do is that I never wasted any time because when I was having writer's block, I just read instead and was still contributing to um, the, the the book being furthered. So um, that yeah, the whole process was very iterative, dipping in and out of um, re- of research and 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 writing as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the kind of research that you did on the legal side which obviously connects to your you know profession as a lawyer and I remember doing research on 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 legal uh things that were happening in East Africa and it always surprised me that in effect many of the laws laid out in the colonial era were not repealed until the 1970s in many um East African countries um you know things that you know we, would surprise us and shock us to think that, you know, certain laws of, you know, uh, uh, contract and and, and, and and you know, issues around, you know, personal family relations, these were not changed until the 1970s. And so they really stuck around with many countries for, um, for decades. And even when they were modified or changed, they were only marginally changed. So I think that colonialism had this kind of, we oftentimes think of colonialism as a kind of, um, uh, you know, taking territory. And in fact, um, what was shocking to me is it, it penetrated every single um, arena of life. Uh, And I think that that in a sense, sense is a kind of um, a huge lesson for me is that, you know, even legal systems were not completely altered after independence for many of these countries. They sat with these laws for a very, very long period of time. And I wanted to ask you ask you about that because I think your book does kind of traverse the kind of colonial and then post colonial moment, um, and understandings of these different understandings of these um, issues of colonialism of of blackness of race of religion of states of wealth poverty privilege. Did you did you really kind of figure out how to address the kind of colonial in the post colonial moment in your in your book and your thinking about this? Talk to me a little bit about uh, your experience with this kind of, you know, intergenerational difference of understanding of, of of colonial experience.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting what you say as well. I mean, let's just start with the fact that Uganda itself wasn't even a colony. It was only a protectorate. and the the concept and the term that we use of you know colonial um uganda or or or, you know the british um, colonization or the west western colonization of of the rest of the world um you know it didn't even extended beyond um countries like you said it wasn't just territorial like establishing control over this territory and and you know laying down laying down sort of the law of the land they were doing it in respect of what they called protectorates which were not colonies um, and the the, the the idea behind a protectorate was that the local the, the, the country and the local population still were able to retain a degree of control. but in practice, and in effect, it was it was not really very different. Um, and yeah, you're completely right, the, those rules and and um, uh, laws that they laid out, in that period, um, went well beyond well beyond um, independence, and and the kind of ripple effect of how it then triggered uh, sort of f- follow down the generations um, is something that the book the book does explore. I mean, one of the things that I was always seeking to to answer or to look at is t- to see the relationship between the South Asian community and the Black community, um, both you know in modern modern day Britain as it were, and uh, historically, and how that you know we can sort of attribute a lot of the facets of that that relationship to the 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 history the, the colonial history because of course the way in which the british treated these two classes um and and they were very distinct classes of citizens in fact some of them weren't even citizens but you know two classes these two populations living in uganda at the time was that the South Asians were were treated much more favorably than the Black community. And um, that obviously caused and created um, a lot of of social, economic, um, and and political tension. And of course, the order did not come out of nowhere. Idi Amin's order didn't come out of nowhere. It came out of years and years and years of feeling, um, you know, like they were under the feet of the the South Asian community. And that was even after, you know, that was even 10 years after independence. So um, the novel does try to explore how this impact of of colonization, British colonization in in Uganda trickled all the way through and and how it affected those communities and that that relationship. Um, In the modern modern day strand, I try to to draw that out as well, um, try to show how the impacts continue to affect us, continue to affect those of us who weren't born um, abroad, necessarily. My, my protagonist in the modern-day section is, is born, um, born and bred in, in the UK, in Leicester. And, um, you know, how that's impacted um, his, his familial relationships, his relationship with, with his identity, his sense of belonging, his sense of home, um, and, you know, his kind of feeling of, of contentment and fulfillment. Because another one of the major themes of the novel is the concept of success. Um, which which is you know m- largely wrapped into to to the to the sort of south asian experience in in uganda and in east africa um, but you know how all of that ties into what the british did uh back in back in uh you know back when they were back when um, uganda was a protectorate so yeah it's um it's all it's all kind of melded in and 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 um I- explored in 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 several different ways but i think the that there are a number of themes that are dealt with in the book and almost all of them you can you can um come back to the the overarching theme of the legacy and the impact of colonialism
0: you're listening to writers festival radio as always i want to thank you for listening and for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times our official bookseller is perfect books on elgin street and wherever you are right now there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books if you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. We can't do this without your support. And now, back to the conversation.
1: It struck me that
0: in the modern day, the most
1: disturbing scenes in the book, you know, related to racially motivated prejudice and violence, take place in Leicester, in the UK. Um, and I was curious as to about these scenes of that you've written about, um, which I think many of us who are South Asian men have experienced um, in, in various ways. Um, do these in your view, reflect the typical immigrant experience of racialized people in the UK to a certain degree? I mean, yeah, I was really curious about those scenes in the
2: book. Yeah, I mean, that those scenes, I mean, I suppose there's probably only one very extreme scene. Or I assume you're thinking of the the, the, the quite extreme example of what, what is essentially a racially motivated physical attack um, on a person that leaves that person physically disabled um, and could have obviously killed him. Um, so that, that's obviously one example. I mean, the obviously these things happen, and one of the things that the book also tries to draw attention to. Is the fact that these things are still happening. And it's a mistake to think that they're not. They're not the experience of every single individual um, who, who's, you know, from an ethnic minority community, of course. Um, and that that's again reflected in the novel. I think the, the kind of more typical um, racial microaggressions and, and sort of uh, subtle prejudice that that we have to deal with are, are kind of more um, the ones that you see with the main protagonist in his job, in his kind of friendships, in his kind of life and, and, and career, um, those are the ones that you see. But I also wanted to just kind of highlight that, you know, the bad, the really bad stuff, the really bad stuff still does happen. I and mean, I think it's a bit of a shock and a surprise to the protagonist when it happens, uh, because he kind of thinks that it doesn't anymore either. And he's, he's from that community himself and he's not conscious that these kinds of things are still going on. Now, of course, again, another, another kind of um, parallel to draw with the, with the historical narrative is that uh, in the historical narrative, and kind of if you, if you see what um, what the, the modern day protagonists' parents say about their experiences coming to this country in the 70s, um, those kind of physical attacks were a lot more common. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, they, they were prevalent and they were pervasive, and, and it was difficult for a, a brown person to walk down certain streets you just wouldn't do it. You know, we, we all know the story, the, there's tons of stories, tons and tons of stories of, of completely random um, racially motivated attacks. Um, and so, you know, the, racist, the, the, the kind of directness of the racism and the physical kind of violence has definitely changed and morphed uh, from generation to generation, but it certainly hasn't disappeared. Um, and, you know, its form has changed, but perhaps it's its impact, at least, on, you know, on your mental health certainly hasn't hasn't changed too much. So that was just another thing. Yeah, no,
1: I, I appreciated the the subtlety of the microaggressions that you mentioned, and also what you've just talked about in terms of the recollections that the book provides of certain experiences of the past that maybe you know, Samir, the main protagonist, isn't necessarily aware of fully or has not experienced until those moments in the book when you know someone close to him experiences these things and he's kind of reconciled to the fact that he's also experiencing them you know in his workplace and in a different way mm-hmm. i wanted to talk to you about this issue of um, in reading the book i began to ask myself of what it means to kind of bury and awaken memories particularly of traumatic experiences um And I didn't want to just think about it in terms of the characters in the book, but by writing this book, you're actually forcing audiences to, you know, perhaps in the case of people who are from these backgrounds or communities who experience this um, themselves to kind of address their own trauma in a way, I mean, inadvertently not maybe that's not the purpose you set out to do but it certainly has happened to me when I was reading the book as I mentioned I you know had some you know fairly violent episodes in my settlement in Canada and the book raised those issues for me but then also um, thinking about my parents and what they sought to bury and not want to talk about in terms of their arrival and settlement in Canada Mm -hmm. but then there's also people who've had traumatic experiences of you know, being refugees and coming to places where they weren't accepted and so on. I wanted to ask you your thoughts about what is an author's kind of role and responsibility in terms of these burials and awakenings that you perhaps unwittingly initiate or perhaps even set out to kind of raise questions about? Uh, What are your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I was quite pleased that obviously I don't want anyone to suffer any trauma or or have, you know, kind of PTSD from reading the novel, but um, I was pleased and delighted to hear that the novel encouraged people to, um, you know, go back to memories that they'd buried and perhaps um, talk about them with their families, especially again, like I said earlier, the younger generation, like trying to engage in conversation with the older generation about these topics. And, you know, the reason these topics haven't been discussed in the family before is because, of course, they they you know they're, they're very traumatic and they cause a lot of pain. Um, and you know the topics that the that the older generation doesn't necessarily want to talk about. But if the older generation or the generation to whom this happened um, could read my book, they might start to process a little bit more what's happened to them, um, and you know potentially then open up and, and, and want to talk about about it. Um, I'm not. You asked, you know, what's our role and responsibility? I mean, I think primarily an author's role is, is just to write, um, write what it is that you want to say and what you're trying to get out there into the world. And for me, the reason I wrote this book, like I mentioned at the beginning, was to try to educate. So whilst it was for it was for this community in a way, of course, it was also for the communities that don't know about this story um and and to, to show them and to teach them that that this is this is this happened and this is here and you these people are living amongst us and they do have all of this buried trauma um, but it it's it's difficult it is difficult and you know writing it in some ways going going kind of you know beyond beyond the sort of direct question about the historic tra- trauma um, writing it in some ways is a little bit of a, a therapeutic process because, you know, I get to air all of my personal issues when writing it. I mean, you know, it, it touches on so many things that are deeply personal to me. So many, you know, small traumas, I've probably described them as compared to what what happened to the generation before me, but, um, you know, I get to kind of uh, process them and write them. And um, in in a way it's kind of cathartic writing and, I, I yeah and, and so it, it definitely helped me to write it and I, I would hope that it could help people um, who were reading it as well. But yeah, there's de- there's a you know our, our generation it's very keen to explore things like therapy and talk about mental health and be very open about all of these issues and, and the generations before us just weren't and they still aren't and and many of them don't believe in in therapy or the benefits of therapy and um, talking about things and not burying burying things deeply, but um, I would hope that that the book could hopefully encourage um, at least some discussion.
1: Well, I think what's what's remarkable and and and, and truly um, beautifully rendered by you in this book is you're giving people like me who grew up in those environments vocabularies and grammars to work with, um, to think about these questions and to see ourselves reflected in stories that we don't have. I didn't grow up with stories like this and could not articulate, could not show that, look, here's someone that kind of looks like me, experienced this thing like me, um, to give to my son to read or, you know, my my family members to read, to say, look, this is the kind of thing that we went through. I can't talk about it, but here's something that I can share with you. I think, think that's been really important for me to say that, wow, here's literature that looks like me sounds like me experiences like me and I wanted to kind of move to another aspect of the book which I think you you again you know show in really amazing ways is at the heart of this story are love stories and you know love is in in the midst of all this kind of trauma there are some amazing um stories uh, 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 of love and uh, and I wanted you to talk to me in particular about Mariam, Um, you know, sort of the main character, one of the main characters in the book. Um, And she struck me as this extremely, you know, vibrant um, woman who, you know, who has wisdom, you know, beyond her years. Tell me about her. How did you come to, did you have someone in mind when you were writing about this or did you just kind of, as a composite? I'm very curious about her.
2: (laughs) I mean, she... The, the, the novel focuses largely on on these two male characters, on Hassan and, and Samir. And Mariam appears in the modern day narratives so, that, you know, she's put, sort of pitted against Samir. Um, she, I, I was very interested to have a mixed relationship, obviously, for personal reasons. <laughs> it had to be done. I actually don't really know very many mixed South Asian um, Black um Couples, uh, you know, families, children. I, I just don't know them, um, and that's not to say they don't exist, but they are certainly very, very small in number. I know from the community that my mum came from, which was quite large Pakistani community expats living in Nigeria. I think there were three people who, who married outside of the Pakistani community and married Black Africans. Um, and you know, I know, I I, I personally know zero. Um, South Asian, Ugandan mixed relationships. Um, So for me, it was very important that that featured in the story and that it featured in a positive um, light. Uh, one thing I've often been asked is why on earth is Mariam even interested in Samir because she's got so much going for her and Samir has nothing which I think is quite a good question and I what while writing her I did wonder at several points whether this was even realistic because the guy was just such a dweeb compared to her but anyway uh, nevertheless she does fall for him sorry if that's a spoiler but um yeah she you know that that does happen i mean she in some ways and i don't want to reduce her to this but the obviously the focus of the story is on, on these male stories like she is she is a device um she's she is the she is the peace and the love that is attempted to be brought to the family who's been who's been you know because because obviously she comes from the family that kind of um creates the division in the in the Hussein story um and and there's kind of a parallelism there between you know the potential of the Amira love story and then the real Samir Muriam love story, and she's kind of like a supposed to be sort of um, you know, we're trying to reconcile the pain and the trauma that's been caused by creating this healing by merging the two cultures type thing. So, um, you know, it's kind of it, it's kind of uh, you know a device in that sense, um, but obviously, you know, as you'll see from the ending of the book, things don't work out exactly um, as, as planned anyway. But um, yeah, she was just, she was a, she was a character that I felt um, obliged to include. And uh, in terms of, you know, who she is and, and what she stands for and what she represents, um, not just sort of um, symbolically from the perspective of making sure that those um, themes of the novel sort of came together, but also just on a personal level. Um, because yeah, she she's a pretty she's a pretty good character. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I hope that, that
1: answers your yeah, question. Yeah, no, I I I just um, yeah, you you kind of made me fall in love with her too because of who she is and what she represents, which is kind of great. Because you know, while I I I, when I was also thinking that, what's it like as um, you know a woman to embody and speak through the male characters as a writer, did you, how did you, how did you do that? Because it's very convincing. I mean, not that it shouldn't be, writers should write any character that they want. I, I know that, but I was just curious that you, you know, it, you, you have these amazing voices that you speak through and um, did you find it challenging or was it fairly seamless for
2: you as a process? Interestingly, I feel like it would be harder to write a female character I don't know if it's because our entire lives were always told the way that men think and where, you know, the, the the sort of, you know, patriarchy tells us everything that we need to know about how a man works. Um, and so that's what we're fed from the moment that we're born. We're told what they like, what they do, what they don't like, what they, you know, what they don't do. And um I I think they're pretty easy to work out. I have to say, <laughs> women on the other hand are far more complicated, and they are you know far more. There's there's, there's a lot more hidden there and deep down there that that isn't as accessible. Um, in the way that kind of you know male male thoughts are. I mean, I obviously had um, my my husband kind of reading every chapter after it was written and giving me little tidbits of of advice. Oh, Samir wouldn't say that. He wouldn't do that. Or yeah, yeah, I think that that's just about right. You know, he he was kind of he was kind of like my male. Um, you know, some of, for example here's a specific example, some of the things that Samir said. You know, the colloquial way in which he would like talk to his friends. Um, You know, my husband was like, basically advising me as to the kinds of things that boys say, like, in their male circles, which I obviously don't know. Um, So, so yeah, it was, it was, it wasn't, I didn't find him hard to write. I didn't find um, Hassan that hard to write either. And again, I think it, it also goes back to the fact that both Samir and Hassan, I know, I know people like them. I know individuals who are very, very like mm. them, um, and and you know that that that's been my experience of of men in the in the South Asian communities, the men who I've come across. Um, I, w- I was writing kind of their, you know, it from their perspective, so it didn't, it no, it didn't, it didn't feel hard. And but as to why I chose to write it from the male perspective, I think for me personally, like, I, I the story that I wanted to write. Um, you know, focused a lot on the kind of success story I mentioned earlier of the of the South Asians in, in Uganda and and I guess East Africa in general. But obviously, in the story, Uganda, it was a very male dominated male dominated kind of um line. And so, you know, if it had been a book about a woman's experience of of this, um, that theme of success and the rat race and the fulfillment and kind of all of the things that that kind of happened to Samir to take him on this journey they w- it wouldn't have been it would have been a very different story it would have been about different themes and about different topics and because success was such a central theme um of the novel to me i i needed i needed the characters to be male yeah i know and sad but true
1: <laughs> well i mean as i said for me you know it was fairly seamless and i guess i have you to thank and your husband to thank for that too a little bit um what was the hardest scene that you've had to write what was what did you find arduous, difficult, challenging in the book, like, or a section that you felt, you know, that took you longer than others to wrap your head around?
2: Yeah. So it's interesting. You asked me about Mariam. And I was saying to you that I found, I find men harder, easier, sorry, to write than women. I think the, for me, the hardest part was writing about the local Ugandan family in modern day Uganda, because that is the, kind of experience that I I myself personally, am the most removed from. Um, It was very easy for me to write Samir's story. Samir's a lawyer, I'm a lawyer. He comes from a South Asian community. I have been, you know, predominantly raised in South Asian communities. Everything that happens in Samir's house, I've seen, I've heard, I've experienced, I've been a part of, Um, you know, it's all very, very personal and easy to to relate to and easy to write. other than the Gujarati, because I don't speak Gujarati and I don't, no, none of my sort of close friends do. So I had to like, <laughs> you know, export the Gujarati to someone who could check that I'd sort oh. of done it all right. Um, and, you know, Hassan's story, because it was so historical, it was just a totally different time period. And there's so many sources that you can draw from to kind of, you know, give it as much accuracy or authenticity as possible. So again, the Hassan chapters were not that hard to write. And like I said, I, I know people like Hassan. So, it wasn't tough. What was hard was the Ugandan, the modern day Ugandans, because I don't know any. Um, I interviewed tons. I, I I wanted to find a, a, a young-ish, you know, Muslim hijab-wearing uh, Ugandan woman um, who could speak to me about, you know, Mariam and her experiences, because without that, and, and I canvassed, you know, I think I probably reached out to about 30 or 40 women, I got about 10 interviews um, and uh, you know, that that was the bit, I think for all writers there's kind of a, you know, a lot of what you write is based on what you know, obviously it's fiction. So you're making up the story, but it doesn't mean that you're making up the experiences um, or, you know, the context in which the experiences happen. Um, but f- for me, when you just have nothing and you're starting with a completely blank slate and you're trying to capture a community as, as kind of, um, you know, realistically as possible, that's quite difficult. Um, and, and yeah, it just, it just did require, I mean, we, we took a trip to Uganda, we obviously, um, met local families. We, we had, um, a local driver taking us around, We obviously talked to him a lot. We, we interviewed, I say we, it was me and my husband. Uh, he obviously wanted to come with me, um, to, to go back to sort of the homeland because he'd not, ever been to Uganda before I decided to write this book um and so yeah you try your best but there's always that concern that you know you haven't quite done something right because it's not something that you know for sure um and and that's always the danger with with uh, writing uh, writing about communities and things that you're not from and I mean that's another whole topic of conversation altogether
1: yeah I was going to ask you about that I mean you said it was your this was presumably your first time in Uganda and your first time for your husband to return. Yeah. What struck you about that trip that, you know, what do you recall most from that experience um, of being there and, you know, what, what, what stood out for you? What, what do you, what did you bring away with you and what do you still recall today about
2: that experience? Well, Well, I mean, for starters, it's probably one of my favourite countries in the whole world. <laughs> I can see why it was so popular. Um, it's just so beautiful. I mean, you just land and it's, it's there's like birds everywhere. I mean, it's all it's all written in the book because I'd written the Ugandans that sort of obviously the second half of it is largely set in modern day Uganda and I'd written that half in sort of outline form before I took the trip and then I took the trip and I rewrote the whole thing because i I had no idea. You know, I'd kind of based it on my general knowledge of West Africa. And it turns out, guess what? West Africa is pretty different. Um, so that was quite naive on my part. But of course, I'd read about Uganda and, and tried to reflect that in in, in what I'd written. But um, it turns out you, you really need to go there to experience it. And I think one of the things that's been said about it is that it's a bit of a love letter to the country itself, because I did quite I fell in love with it. It's just so beautiful. Um, the people are just so, so friendly as well. And, and so warm and welcoming and you know we were received so nicely there and um kind of everything that we experienced there was like it, it was just it was just such a wonderful trip um you know the landscape the climate and the kind of your surroundings it, it they just really really stood out in my memory is is it is it being one of the most beautiful countries i'd ever visited um so yeah, it was. It, it really. It's. I hope it's reflected in the novel. I've been told it is reflected in the novel. But everything you asked me, what stood out for you? Everything that I've put in the novel about the country itself <laughs> is what stood out for me. Which yeah. Be,
1: yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Um,
1: so um, your books received this prestigious Murky Books New Writer's Prize, a remarkable achievement. Congratulations. Um, what has surprised you most about the reception of your book? You've mentioned a few things along the way in our conversation, but for you, what's kind of taken you aback in terms of how people have received it?
2: Yeah. I mean, look, I, I've I've really, really been touched by people reaching out to me and a lot of people have reached out to me. I mean, there's sort of various camps um, into which they fall, but many of them are thank you for writing about my community thank you for writing something that resonates with me so much thank you for writing you know my story um and that that's obviously been wonderful then there's been the kind of um older generation who've written to me who are ex-Ugandan um actually like white you know, white white people who lived in Uganda in colonial, well, yeah, in the sixties or like just shortly shortly before independence, and 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 um some some of them, you know, a good decade or two before independence, and and now in this country and and quite old. Um, I've had a few people like that write to me to just say, oh, evoke so many memories for me, and um, you know, I loved reading reading all of the the historical sections, so that that's obviously been really nice. And then of course. You know the general general reception and people sort of saying, you know, being being educated generally on the topic and saying, oh, I didn't know this story and, and now I do, and thank you so much for writing it. So I've had all those sort of three camps of feedback, but I think one of the things that I loved the most um, happened to me quite recently. I the book's obviously written um, written and published in the UK and. Um, it's uh, it's a UK focused story in the sense that obviously the protagonist in the modern day Strand is, um, is it's largely like kind of the story of, of his experiences, um, uh, you know, surviving Britain or, or growing you know, character development in, in, in his journey in, in Britain. Um, but I recently was in Nairobi for Macondo Literary Festival and I didn't realise that I had such a fan base in Nairobi, and it had reached Nairobi. The novel had reached Nairobi, and there were so many people who had read it and loved it, and that was very, very touching because I had—I've never been in a situation where I've kind of walked out of a room and had fifty people all crowding up to me saying, "Please, can you sign my book? Can I have a photo? I love this so much!" And to know that it's reached, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, um, a part of a part of East Africa. Um, and and been really well received by the people there is really nice. So yeah, it it's it's overall been a really um a really amazing journey.
1: Yeah, no, I'd had a, a tough time getting it here in Canada, but hopefully um, we'll see more of more copies in bookstores here. Hafsa, what's on the horizon for your next writing project? Um, any thoughts?
2: <laughs> well. Uh... Let me put it this way. I mean, I'm writing one thing at the moment that's going to be published, um, hopefully in in May next year. Which is 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 not a novel. It's a, it's a it's another essay in a collect. Well, it's not an essay. It's, it's fiction. It's fictionalized um, essay in a collection of stories about mental health. Um, so that's hopefully coming out in May next year. Um, but in terms of my sort of next big writing project, I'm <laughs> I'm still thinking about it. It's it's it's. Uh, I will write again. I'm just not sure when. Um, and I I have lots and lots of ideas always bubbling and and, and um, sort of brewing under the surface. It's just finding the time when I still have a full-time job and a little one-year-old. So at the moment it's a it's quite a tough personal, personal time, <laughs> but it's definitely something that's gonna happen in the next decade.
1: <laughs> well, we certainly look forward to it. I'd like you to invite you to read a passage from the
2: book, if you could. Sure. Okay. Chapter two, To My First Love, My Beloved, 15th of August, 1945. It's my wedding night tonight, but instead of lying with my new wife, I'm sitting here in my study writing to you. I could not bring myself to touch her. I could barely look at her. And now she lies in our marital bed alone whilst I sit here with a pen and paper. I know this is foolish. I know this letter will never reach you, but I didn't know what else to do. I had to talk to you. The nikah took place earlier today in the stuffy heat of our front room. A power cut meant the fans were not working. All the windows were open, but no breeze could allay the stickiness that clung to us all. It was a small and rushed affair. Just Papa, Samir and Abdullah were there. To, were present to witness Mwazam Kaka confirming that Shabnam, my new wife, agreed. The imam hurriedly recited the Fatiha. And Shubham appeared like a ghost through the side door, draped in a red gauze dupatta. A small, sickly-looking child in a green shalwar kameez, holding a plateful of luddus followed her. Shabnam sat down beside me, accompanied by the thick scent of jasmine, and I could feel the weight of her body depress my side of the sofa. My insides began to churn before the ladoo even reached my lips. Shabnam is twenty-one years old. I am forty. Fair enough.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Hafsa Zayan, thank you for joining us today and for sharing your stories. And we look forward to seeing you in Ottawa um, in November and uh, your book on the bookshelves in Canada. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much.
0: That was Zolka Farhirji in conversation with Hafsa Zayan about her novel, We Are All Birds of Uganda. The author and host are both participating in Carleton University's Beyond Resettlement Conference, which includes a public event on November 14th. Visit writersfestival.org for all the details. Thanks to all our patrons, volunteers, and donors, and thanks to the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Ottawa Public Library, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay, Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening.